This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jim Callison, Jonathan Mayo. The Arizona Fall League is in full swing. We're going to talk plenty about that. We'll also check in on the Marlins, who are adding more and more cash to their international bonus uh, vault, I guess, in an attempt to sign international players. But before we get to that, Jim was down at Instructs, got a chance to catch up with Brady Singer uh, and reflect a little more on the 2016 Florida Gators pitching staff, something that's been a constant theme here on the Pipeline podcast. But you talked to him a lot about a lot more than just that, Jim. Why don't you set up this interview with Brady Singer? Yeah, I did. And of course, I did have to mention those. You knew I was mentioning the 2016 Gators, <laughs> uh, which are my favorite uh, college pitching staff of all time, even though I'm a Georgia grad. But uh, no, it was just, it was perfect timing. Uh, I had done a story on Royals Instructional League uh, uh, last week uh, from afar and talked to J.J. Piccolo, their, their assistant GM, and he told me Singer starts on Mondays. And I was like, hey, this, this works out great because I'm coming down there in the fall league, but I was only covering a night game. So I, I went out and I, and I watched Brady pitch two innings. And the stuff kind of looked like, like the normal Brady Singer stuff, you know, it was kind of 92, 93 with a fastball from a, a tough angle, and he threw some sliders. He was working on the changeup more than his than his really nasty slider. Did give up a long home run to uh, Corey Zangari of, of the White Sox, but it was just about getting some work in. He had some hamstring issues at the end of the college season, and then there was the layoff between the, the end of the College World Series and signing, and they just, the Royals decided they weren't going to ramp him up they weren't going to ramp him back up to get it to where he could pitch in minor league games. They just had him pitch like a week or two at the end of the minor league season. So he, he was excited um, about getting to pitch, get get some work in in instructional league because he's a competitive guy and he didn't love sitting around uh, all summer. And uh, But, no, it, it was good to catch up with Brady. So here is Brady Singer and Jim Callis. Brady, how, I guess, excited, I know exci- exciting is not usually a word used to describe instructional league, but how excited were you to uh, – able to get out and pitch with the Royals uniform on after not being able to do so this summer with the hamstring issues. Oh, no, it's extremely exciting just to get out here and throw a few innings and kind of work on stuff, you know, meet some of the pitching coaches and, you know, kind of bounce ideas off, of, you know, what they've done in the past. Um, there's a lot of guys here to help um, and to, uh, you know, like I said, learn from them and come out here and kind of show it on the mound, just get the arm moving and get back into, you know, the game. It was kind of hard to sit there all summer long and just kind of watch. But to come out here and finally, you know, get some competitiveness in me and, you know, get going and work on stuff, it's been awesome. From watching you pitch today, you pitched two innings, which I guess has been your normal stint down here. I mean, it looked kind of like typical Brady Singer stuff, you know, low 90s fastball, slider was working pretty good. looked like you were trying to emphasize the changeup against lefties. Do you feel like you're – your stuff is where you want to be. I mean, I know it's structurally you're not going into a regular season anytime soon, but was your stuff what you what you hoped it would be down here, and was it a change-up a point emphasis for you? Yeah, I mean, the change-up was huge, and I think I've thrown a lot more, and it's gotten a heck of a lot better than what I've thrown in college. Um, I've been throwing, like I said, a lot more here just to work on it because I know I have to have it. But, you know, the fastball's been there. You know, I need to clean up the command a little bit better. Um, 
but like I said, um, everything's been working well, and you know, just getting bigger and better and stronger, and obviously coming out here to compete. But you know, pitching, you know, it felt good all all instructional league. What did you feel about the atmosphere here in instructional league? Is it kind of nice being able to work on stuff and the games don't really matter? I mean, I know you're you're known for being competitive, so I'm sure you want to obviously get guys out. But I mean, is it a good atmosphere to kind of? break into pro ball and, and try out a couple things without the without the games really counting? Yeah, I mean, but I want to bring out the competitiveness every time I come out and pitch. It's a little bit difficult here. Down here, it's, you know, it's really quiet. Um, so that's a little bit hard, but, you know, that's something to learn. Just come out here and compete every single time I come out, no matter who's in the crowd or, you know, how quiet it is or something like that. Just come out here and give your best effort, compete like I know how. What will the rest of your, uh, your offseason look like, and when will you report back down here to surprise in the spring? Oh uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll come down here and you know the end of January, come out here when I'm throwing bullpens and you know, like I said, you know, just start learning, get ready for you know 2019, my first full season. Um, I'm really excited for that. I'm just gonna have a great off season and get you know bigger and get better and you know work on some things. Even though I'm a Georgia grad, Brady, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Gators 2016 pitching staff. We had Peter Alonzo on our podcast recently, uh, and I asked him about this. Uh, you know, you had a pit- you were a part of a pitching staff when you were a freshman that had I think five future first round picks eight or nine guys if Michael Byrne winds up being a starter who could wind up starting a game in the big leagues, a pretty crazy pitching staff. If you're building the perfect repertoire, fastball, curve, slider, changeup off that staff, whose pitches would you take to put together that repertoire? Mm. <laughs> a lot no, of good ones. That's not easy. But, uh, you know, A.J. Puck had a fastball. Everybody wants that. I mean, it was downhill. You know, he's huge. He's tall. So, you know, that fastball is unbelievable. Uh, shorts changeup. Obviously, one of the best. You know, that goes hand in hand with Coars too. Coars got one of the better changeups I've ever seen. Um, you know, slider. You had Fiedos. You had Dunnings. And, you know, it was just. You're just pretty good too. Yeah, I mean, I had the slider too. But if we're talking about other guys, you know, if you had to make one guy, I mean, you can make a pretty darn good pitcher out of all the guys that we had on that staff. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of good ones. And just one more question: I want to ask you about Jackson Coar. I mean, obviously, you guys were were close. You went through three years together with the Gators. How excited are you to be able to to be in pro ball with him too? I mean, I can't imagine you guys thought you'd be picked by the same team. Just the way the draft would work out and, and lo and behold it did oh i know unbelievable when he got picked by them we were like we seriously got to hang out with each other for a lot <laughs> longer now but you know it was awesome you know we, we competed at college and now we get to compete here too i think it makes us both better good stuff from brady right there jonathan um when you think about him obviously he went into draft day he was right at the near the top of your guys list he fell to number 18 there for the royals which is good for them obviously if he stays healthy through the offseason and and gets to opening day is he going to be on a pretty fast track in your mind yeah, I, w- I would have to think so. I mean, the the biggest thing about Brady Singer is you know, the stuff is pretty good, uh, but it's really advanced and he commands it well. When when he's at his best, he's you know, he's got two plus pitches, a solid changeup, and and he can fill up the strike zone. He knows how to set up hitters. He's really smart. He is uh, a tremendous competitor on the mound. So I, I could see him moving extremely quickly. Uh, you know, he won't have thrown competitively really in, in quite some time. But if you told me that he'd start the year in double A, I believe it. If they want to be you know, a little conservative and start him in high A, I think he'll pitch his way to double A. Uh, and then we're talking uh, about a, a trajectory of the big leagues by, by 2020. Uh, but if you told me that he could be ready to to contribute in the big leagues in 2019, I think stuff and moxie and all that stuff wise. Yeah. I, I think you could be there. I don't know that that would make any sense for, for the Royals as they, as they rebuild, but uh, I, I do expect him to, to be a, a pretty quick, uh, quick to the big leagues type of college arm. 
Jim, because of all the draft picks, the Royals knew uh, June was going to be big for them. And, and by most accounts, they did a good job. Obviously, time will tell. But just talk about that system as a whole and where it stands. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not – I don't think it's a top-10 system right now, but I do think it's got a ton of intriguing young talent. I mean, you've got Khalil Lee, who's out here in the fall league, who's a real interesting toolsy guy. You've got three really high upside position players who helped win a championship at low class A Lexington this year. Nick Prado hit like we thought he was going to hit when he was first-round pick last year in the second half of the season, and he's a really good glove at first base as well. MJ Melendez behind the plate has a chance to be a really nice all-around catcher. And then Sully Matias, you know, hit the home run in the Futures game, has as much raw power as just about anyone, anywhere. I, I loved it when David Ortiz compared him to a young Sammy Sosa in the fall league, I mean, in the, in the Futures game. And then, you know, you, you mentioned the draft. I mean, they got Brady Singer and Jackson Coar, and really the guy who, who out, I mean, Singer didn't pitch this summer, but, but the best pitcher they got in the first round so far has been Daniel Lynch, the lefty out of Virginia, has been a revelation. And then they got guys like Chris Bubich out of Stanford and Austin Cox later in the draft. All those pitchers, along with Jonathan Boland, another drafted pitcher, and those three hitters, with the exception of Lee, are probably going to be at, at high class day Wilmington next year, which uh, might be, you know, it, it's my early pick. I'm sure we will write the story, but that might be the most talented roster in the minor leagues to start the 2019 season. All right, so the Royals heading in the right direction, obviously, after tearing it all down as they start to build things back up. Let's switch gears to the Arizona Fall League. Um, we'll talk about players who have gotten off to great starts there, and you guys have both spent some time in Arizona already, so specifically, guys, that you got a chance to see. But I want to start with, uh, I thought it was kind of funny, the players of the week come out for the first week of the Arizona Fall League. And who is it but Vlad Guerrero Jr. as a hitter, Forrest Whitley on the mound, as those two guys did what you thought they would do, absolutely dominating. Vlad Guerrero, uh, Guerrero Jr., um, when I wrote down the numbers, I think through his first five games for that first week, 591 average, a 1434 OPS, uh, five doubles, nine RBIs in five games. And then Forrest Whitley just came out and struck out the first seven batters that he faced. So let's start there, Jonathan. Um no surprise, but guys that dominated during the season um, have continued to just show you that they are pretty much ready for the big leagues. Yeah, it, uh, it was ridiculous because uh, I was at part of Guerrero's first game, the first, the first day of the Fall League, uh, and I got to see uh, Guerrero and Whitley, uh, you know, in day. It was like a day-night kind of, kind of deal. And... You know, you're like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. You don't expect much. And I, I didn't get to see much of Guerrero, but I think he had three hits that day. Uh, and uh, he was off and running. You know, now he goes uh, two for four and his average goes down. Uh, but uh, he's done what he's done. Everything he hits is hard. He's got uh, five doubles of his 14 hits. Uh, hasn't hit one over the fence yet. I don't know what's wrong with him. Uh, but he's only struck out once. and uh, So he, he's been ridiculous. And then Whitley... You know, uh, Guerrero, I had had the pleasure of seeing before. I hadn't really seen Whitley pitch. And I was expecting to see, you know, uh, velocity, maybe a little too amped up. I mean, he hadn't, he hadn't really pitched much. He, he came back and threw a little tiny bit in the in the double-A playoffs, but uh, hadn't thrown much. And he came in and for three, the first three innings, throwing four above average or plus pitches all for strikes, and he looked big league ready right now. If I had one pro scouting director um, say 
that uh, he texted A.J. Hinch and said, well, I've got your starter for Sunday. Uh, he's right here. But that's how good he looked. In fourth inning, he, he ran out of gas a little bit, tried to nibble some. But even he, he said afterwards, he said, he, you know, because he had pitched so sparingly, he hadn't even pitched into the fourth or fifth inning much at all during the year. So he's still shaking the rust off and still was – that uh, it was – it may have been the most dominant pitching performance in the fall league I've ever seen. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen that. And Forrest Whitley even said after the game that he's never done that. And even in high school, he had never struck out the first seven batters he, he faced. And so Jim, it was sorry. impressive. Jim, that's why this fall league session for Whitley is important, though, right? Just the innings factor. It is. I mean, he had like an oblique injury and he had a, a drug suspension, so he missed a bunch of the season. And it's funny, you know, I was I was at the game I was at last night. I was, I had one eye on the game and I was watching the Astros uh, Red Sox game. And I don't know if we talked about him too much on the podcast, but it seemed like every time I won an MLB Network at the end of the season, Scott Braun and I were talking about Josh James, and I kept saying, you know, his arm is so good. I think they got to think about putting him on the playoff roster, which they obviously did. And and I had the same thought about Whitley. Uh, I, I was at his second start, and he didn't he didn't strike out the first seven guys, but he sat 94-96 for four innings. His changeup was actually his best secondary pitch that day. So his curve wasn't really working. He didn't throw it much, but he looked great. And while I was watching that game, I, I thought to myself, you know, if he'd had a normal season, if he doesn't get the suspension, he doesn't have the oblique injury, I wonder if Forrest Whitley would have been on the, on the Astros playoff roster. Because now, I mean, it's no longer – you know, hey, we're going to have four regular starters in the postseason. It's it's basically give us our best arms, and we'll figure out how we're going to use them. And I think there's a very good chance he might have been on that playoff roster if he had a normal season. So getting the innings, uh, our key, I, I've joked, I've made this joke a couple times, I think he's, he's, he's my bet to lead the Arizona Fall League in innings because he didn't really have an arm injury, but he didn't really pitch a lot of innings this year. So I think we're going to see a lot of Forrest Whitley in the Arizona Fall League, I, I would expect he'll be here till the very end and, and probably pitching, you know, five, six innings to start by the end. 14 strikeouts in his first seven and a third innings pitched over those first two outings, so certainly dominant. All right, how about some other guys you guys saw that aren't the obvious, Guerrero, Jr., and Whitley? Jonathan, start with you. I'll bounce back and forth. Just want a couple guys from each of you that, that really stood out and are showing their stuff in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, I'll... Uh... I'll be the homer uh, because it's it just I happened to see Cole Tucker play twice, uh, and he looked every bit the big league shortstop, uh, and just also the way he swung the bat. Uh, he, you know, I hadn't really gotten a chance to see him play the infield, uh, and he has come a, a long way. He's still learning his body. He's big, um, but he made. Uh, the player really stands out. Uh, it was in that that first game, and uh, he ranged uh, far into the hole. Uh, did a little uh, sort of slide to get there to pop up, kind of like uh, Jack Wilson. He worked with Jack Wilson during the off season, and evidently Jack taught him that move. The 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 runner beat the throw, but he got up and threw a strike to first. And Vladdy, who was playing third, kind of just was standing there, turning around, looking at him, almost with a how did you get to that ball kind of look on his face? Um, but he's also been impacting the ball uh, and, and hitting it hard uh, and is off to a good start. I think he's six for 17. He's got four steals, uh, even when he struggled in double A, and he, he turned it on in the second half. He ran the base as well. 
so he, he's kind of an interesting guy as the as the Pirates flip the switch and, and try to go younger. And uh, you know, Kevin Newman made it up here to Pittsburgh uh, uh, for for a brief uh, sort of audition. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we've talked about this before, but I think Jim also agrees with me on this, but it's just whether or not Kevin Newman can hit enough to be an everyday shortstop, we'll have to see. Uh, Cole Tucker does not lack the strength to, to do that, and he is off to a, a very, very good start uh, in the fall, and I think that could be a good springboard for him next year. Your turn, Jim. Who's standing out to you? Um, well, an, an obvious guy, and it's funny. I talked to him last night. <laughs> I had it was weird. I was at an Arizona Folly game. I'm watching the Red Sox Astros game, which is crazy. And the Folly game I was at was one-one for 11 innings and not much going on. And and you know how much I love the runner on second base roll in extra innings. <laughs> and we 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 so the, the game-winning rally went with runner starts on second, guy hits fly ball to right to move him to third, intentional walk which was interesting because they didn't hold C.J. Hinojosa on after intentionally walking him. So he pulled second on the first pitch, negating the uh, the importance of the intentional walk. Then four-pitch walk, four-pitch walk, walk-off uh, to Peter Alonzo. Great excitement there. So anyway, I talked to Peter after the game. So while that game, he didn't do much except walk-off walk. The first game I saw him play, he doubled, he homered. He, he's tearing up the fall league just like he did uh, the regular season. You know, it was interesting talking to him last night. It was it was good. I got him on my side. He he's not a huge fan of the runner on second base rule either. Um, and then he actually, you know, it was funny. I, I thank him for being on the podcast and he talked about how much he enjoyed it. So he's a. I don't know what the next step up is from friend of the podcast, but he's like a, a best friend of the podcast, I guess. BFF. But um, the uh, the the interesting <laughs> thing was, uh, you know, he does have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about his defense. We we're talking about what he was working on, and, and he talked about defense in the context of proving a lot of people wrong who don't know what they're talking about. And he feels like he's made a lot of progress since he got to AAA and he's working on it here and, and was thrilled to be here. But he, uh, you know, I haven't seen much out of him. And he hasn't had any really tough plays defensively, but, but offensively the double and Homer was the, the same Peter Alonzo we saw during the regular season. And you can actually see that interview, Jim, good enough to, to videotape that. We have that up on uh, MLB.com uh, as well, so you can actually tune into a little bit of Peter Alonso, a clip from it at least. All right, Jonathan, back to you. One more guy. Well, I'm going to the mound, and there's been a couple of good pitching performances, but I'm going to talk about uh, and Hernandez who uh, from the Red Sox, who actually pitched in the Forrest Whitley game um, for Mesa, uh, Forrest Whitley is on Scottsdale. Uh, came in in relief uh, and was ridiculous when I saw him. Uh, two innings, one hit, five strikeouts, nothing else, and was just nasty. Uh, big, strong left-hander. He's been a starter throughout his career. Moved up to Double A at the end of the year and was pitching out of the bullpen and, and threw pretty well for for Portland. Uh, he threw again. Um, a few days later, I didn't get to see it, but it was another two innings, one hit. Uh, he walked the guy this time, but he struck out six. So now in four innings in the fall league, that's uh, two hits allowed, one walk and 11 strikeouts, so 143 batting average against. Uh, he has been absolutely dominant. And uh, Jim, I actually wanted to ask you, I, like, I don't know if you know what the Red Sox are planning for him long term, but uh, the way he's looked out of the bullpen – 
I'd be awfully tempted to leave him there, and then I think he'd be ready to to pitch in the big leagues uh, sometime early in 2019. Yeah, they um, I think you know he's kind of like a lot of young guys. I mean, I think if you had to put your money on where he winds up, you'd say the bullpen because the control and the command haven't been the sharpest. But he he's got the best arm of any lefty in the system. Um, I think they're going to continue to keep him as a starter for at least one more year with the thinking that that gets you regular work to, to continue to try to refine your ability to harness your pitches. Um, you know, I think the, the pure stuff, yeah, the pure stuff, you know, would not look out of place in the big leagues at all. The only thing that would be tricky is that given how good a team the Red Sox are is, you know, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess they're going to buy with Craig Kimball not throwing strikes right now. But, like, I, I just don't know if he'd throw enough strikes in the big league level to where you'd want to try him in any kind of high leverage situation as good as the stuff is. But they've been, they, they have raved about his stuff for the last two or three years. I mean, it's, as you mentioned, a big, big arm. All right, Jim, and stick with you. One more guy. Um, I'm going to go a little bit more obscure. Um, I saw him last night, uh, Melvin Adon uh, of the Giants, you know, talking about big, big arms. You know, he, he, he's a real interesting guy because, you know, he, he, most of your guys who are signed internationally, you, you, your better guys are, are signed when they're 16 years old. Um, you know, that's when they're first eligible to sign. And Adon was a guy who was almost 21, actually ancient, when he signed in 2015. So he, he's a little bit older for a guy who hasn't been above high A. He's 24 now. But, I mean, he, he's hit 102 miles an hour in the past. He was up to 99, 100 last night. He was working on a two-seamer. But was, for the most part, pretty pitch efficient. Got in one little jam, but pitched out of it. But, but two innings, four strikeouts. Um, looked, um, you know, the, the body looked good. You know, it's a big frame, but it was kind of lean. And, uh, you know, four strikeouts, no walks, two innings. You know, the Giants would love to see more and more of that out of Melvin Adon. And he's kind of in the same boat as, as Hernandez. They've, they've developed him as a starter in large part because he needs innings. You know, the command can be shaky. But, um, you know, he's a guy that I think we'll see in San Francisco, you know, maybe not 2019, but I'll bet we see him in 2020. All right. So you guys will continue to monitor the Arizona Fall League, which is uh, in full swing right now. One more thing to wrap up this podcast, and that is I wanted to touch on what the Miami Marlins are doing as far as international bonus money. Um, When we kind of got into the late season, off season, after the trade deadline, the Baltimore Orioles had kind of lined themselves up to be the big spenders with Victor, Victor Mesa, Victor Mesa Jr., guys coming up and and available to sign on the international market. But the Marlins have now surpassed the Orioles, making some trades for some extra international dollars. And it seems very clear that playing down in Miami, they really want to grab, if they can get the Cuban players. Talking to Joe Frasaro, he thinks they're going to make the push for the big three that are available right now, which is the Mesas and, and stud pitcher as well. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts, Jonathan. I, I mean, they're going to obviously have some drafts as well with some high picks, but it seems like if you're the Miami Marlins, this is really logical and something that they strangely never really embraced with the old ownership group. Well, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. The two teams that you mentioned, you know, the, the Marlins, and you point out that they've not uh, really tried to do this previously. And the Orioles, who have famously or infamously spent almost nothing on the international market, were the two teams uh, stockpiling international money to, to make a run at some of these guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that they'll both be able to get some talented players and, and, all you have to do is look 
at major league rosters to see where, you know, a lot of times that's where superstars come from. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, it would seem that the Marlins would be the natural fit for uh, a lot of these players because of, of the, you know, large Cuban community uh, that they've often had trouble tapping into as a fan base. Uh, so I think it'd be a win-win where potentially uh, a Cuban player, especially one who maybe, you know, if, if one isn't, uh, you know, 16 years old, um, you know, and, and Victor Victor Mesa's 22, uh, would be quick to the big leagues and then would feel comfortable because of the Cuban community, uh, community there. Uh, and at the same time would then attract more Cuban fans to, uh, to, to come to game. So it looks like a win-win will, you know, obviously it'll depend on the players and where they decide to go. Uh, there's not that much money differential. Uh, so it's not like Baltimore can offer uh, one of them, you know, $30 million more to entice them to, to come to Baltimore instead of stay in Miami. So you would think Miami would have uh, a bit of an edge. Um, but I, I guess really at the end of the day, uh, it's something along the lines of to the spoils goes the victors. Like <laughs> oh, man. All right. Okay. It worked way too hard to get there, but uh, I had to. That was quite an answer to get to that point. Um, yeah, I know. You think, uh, Jim, you think brothers maybe are a package deal as far as signing goes, but we've learned recently with the Guriels that that's not the case necessarily, the Astros and the Blue Jays splitting up that brotherly pair. Um, so it'll be interesting to see with uh, the Mesa, Mesa Jr. and Victor, Victor Mesa, uh, five years apart. Mesa Jr. is just 17 years old. They're both outfielders, but it's definitely going to be a fascinating thing to keep an eye on here in the next couple months. It is, and and the thing it's, you know, I think, you know, it, it'll be interesting because I don't necessarily know if, you know, the, the money, the teams pretty much can spend the same amount of money, so it seems like the tiebreaker might go to being able to stay in that, that Cuban community, you know, in Miami rather than go to Baltimore, and I guess the thing that jumps up to me a little bit, and, and granted, you know, Jonathan and I don't cover this nearly as much as uh, Jesse Sanchez does for us, so I'm not going to claim I'm on top of, of every aspect of it, but I just thought it was interesting that, you know, during the summer when the Orioles were making trades and they were you know, acquiring international money and, hey, we're going to be involved internationally again. And, you know, Victor Victor and Victor Mesa Jr.'s names were bandied about as, as guys the Orioles could go get. You know, having money doesn't always mean you get the player. It, and, and if the Orioles don't get these guys, the Orioles are going to be sitting there with a bunch of international money. And I'm sure there'll be guys to spend it on, but I don't know who those necessarily would be. Um, you know, if they don't get these big prizes, I, I think that's a little bit of a of a loss for the Orioles. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of I can't. I'm getting old now, so I won't pinpoint the exact draft year, but the year that the, the Pirates had the fourth overall pick in the draft, I think it was 2009, and they took Tony Sanchez. And one of the things you heard was, oh, they're taking Tony Sanchez, they're saving money, and they're you know there weren't international spending caps, but you had your own team budget. And they were going to use the money they saved on Tony Sanchez to go sign Miguel Sano. Well, they didn't get Miguel Sano, and Tony Sanchez wound up being a bad number four overall pick. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a blow if the Orioles don't get these guys because I think that was part of their thinking when they were making some of the moves they did during the summer in, in the hopes that they would land them. So it'll be very interesting to see who winds up with them. 
And it certainly isn't helping the Orioles' cause, I think, right now that they are without a general manager, without a manager, um, as far as wrapping those guys up as well. But definitely something we'll keep an eye on, and we'll probably at some point have Jesse Sanchez on this podcast again to uh, to break those players down again as well. That'll do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jim Callison, Jonathan Mayo, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time.